You're listening to Just, stories about the people working to build thriving communities rooted in justice. I'm Jess Averhart, co-founder of Black Wall Street Homecoming. And I'm Rob Shields, executive director of the ReCity Network. All right, look, so here's why we're here. We're here to get proximate, we're here to listen, we're here to process, and we're here to help you process. But here's what we're not gonna do. We're not gonna be preachy because we don't have all the answers and we will never make you feel like an outsider. Keeping with the theme of sharing, we always want to acknowledge the whole person, and that starts with our personal, personal check-in. check-in. Let's do it. Oh, here we go. Rob, are here you we, there? I see you. Here, here we are. <laughs> here we are. I love it. So again, for our listeners who've been with us a long time, they know that we can see each other. They can't see us because we don't show the video, but we see each other. Mm. <laughs> so you should see our faces this for morning. Laughing to keep like, from crying. What is yep. happening? 2021? That was the 2020 was the dumpster fire. I thought we were walking into 2021 with like angelic lights around us and the halos and the whole thing. Yeah, so much for that blank slate, right? No, sir. Yeah, that is not what is happening. So, uh, well, we're doing our personal check-in, which I love and mm. we need. We can't need. skip it. Can't skip it right now. Yeah, we can't skip it. So um, I'm going to kick it to you, friend. How are you? I see how you are. I see yeah. that on your face. But let's talk oh, to me. It is, it is so many emotions. Honestly, like processing over the, the, the last couple of weeks events, it's like you're, you're, you're feeling the weight of it, but then also almost this resolve to press into all the things that we've always discussed as well, because it, it brings new meaning and new, a, a renewed conviction to the importance of every conversation that you and I have had over the past year and a half. And so it's, it's like a despair and, and, and it varies minute by minute, right? It's like, what is going on? And these are just my personal, like emo- emotive reactions, right? I mean, yeah, um, yeah, right. of how are we going to make it? But then also realizing, and, and honestly, a lot of the resilience is coming from just the way that I, when I talk to ReCity partners, when I talk to, you know, you and I were on a call um, recently with, uh, 25 plus community leaders in, uh, yeah. here in Durham. And just, man, the reactions were all over the place. That's how I feel in my heart, like all across the spectrum. But it's really so helpful to hear some of the folks that are um, that, I, that we get the blessing to being in community with that don't have the luxury of letting all the emo- negative emotions come in. They just, they got to keep, they got to keep pressing on. Keep going. Um, yeah. And so for me, I, it's almost like I'm, I'm letting, I'm following their lead right now because I don't know if I don't really feel like I have the strength, um, yeah. but they give me strength and they set an example for me to follow. And I'm like, if they can do it, then I, I can do it. And I want to, I want to show up for them. And so I, that that's a little how I'm doing. I mean, little did we know, right? Little did we know that, when we, I know we were texting on January 6th, that afternoon, both of us coming in and out of meetings. And I'm like, can you believe we <laughs> dropped an episode about a political insurrection two days ago? Yeah. And now this is happening. Yeah. Um, we just, we would have had no idea because, you know, our listeners have caught on to this. We, we record in advance. This isn't CNN. This isn't right. live, live YouTube streaming. You know, we, there, there's a, a gap in, from when we record to when we release episodes. And so, we knew we wanted to talk about the events of 1898 and the significance of them. And we recorded that well before the 6th. And I think a lot of people are making those connections now after the 6th of, oh, wait, this is actually yeah. all in our history. And people who are native of North Carolina are like, wait, this happened in Wilmington or, or a version of this coup language insurrection. Where have I heard that before? Oh, wait. And I think that it's important for our listeners to know that we're leaning into this history and we knew, we knew that we needed to tackle this stuff before the sixth, because if we don't learn lessons from things like the documentary Wilmington on Fire and, and what happened with that political insurrection 120 years ago and what they had to teach us, that those same patterns would continue to repeat themselves. So that's a lot, but that is a, that's a long answer to a short question. How are you doing? How are you processing all these things? Yeah, we've had a chance to talk once or twice, but not in this depth and not this specifically, you know, I, I also, um, you, you know, talk thinking about the the time that we were together with, um, members of ReCity 
in hearing this, um, one of your questions was to just give the one word, right? What's one word? How are people feeling? And, and it was all over the board. I mean, certainly mostly a little bit of despair, disappointment, you know, but then there's like this like neutral space of like, "Hmm, I'm not surprised, right? Mm -hmm. This like Mm -hmm. kind of indifference around it. And I live in that, I sort of live there. My, my word, which I actually never, I realized I never shared on that call was being anchored, Mm. being anchored. That's Mm. how I'm feeling right now. And that feels wrong because it feels like the anchor is lifted, like that the ship is kind of like flailing in the, in the storm and, and not solid. But I'm not talking about our country. Our country mm. isn't anchored, but mm. I am, mm. you know, mm. and I think it comes from like responsibility, my responsibility to my family and to the people that are listening to this. You know, you have to get anchored in, in what you know to be true. I'm not terribly surprised. Um, you know, there was a lot of indication that, that it was going to look like I had no idea. First of all, we're all like, what is happening in your wildest dreams? Could you ever imagine those types of images? So right. when you think about the shock and awe, I was just like flabbergasted by what I was seeing, just the, the sheer callousness and casual nature of it all. Just, I wasn't ready for that. Mm. But what led up to it and the, the vitriol that I, that I saw in the faces of those folks, yep, wasn't surprised about that. So, you know, that's how I'm feeling. Feeling anchored right now because it's the way I'm getting peace. It's like, it's like the one thing that, that I, I I just, I can't get too far away from center because then I'm not sure if I'll, how long it'll take me to get back. Maybe that's really what it is. I think I'm I'm literally processing this with you. I think there is some danger in like spiraling too far away from your center when Mm. these things happen, because you can lose touch with the things right now that presently matter, making dinner for your family having real solid conversations that make sense and aren't like Mm. spun out of news cycle, continuing to go through the day and not watching the news all day long. Like you have work to do. Like, so part of me is like trying to stay close anchored to Mm. my center so that I can function. And I am grateful for this podcast because Mm. this was brought to life, right, Rob? Like we, all the work that we've been doing and the conversations we've been having with these incredible guests, experts in their field, members of community. It's like, it's like we all experience it together as a just podcast family, Mm. sort of knowing the history of where this comes from and then watching it come to life, this dissension and this 400 years sort of in 3D. So yeah, mm. that's the question we're we're, we're asking ourselves today, right? On Dr. King, on Martin Luther King Day, right? You know, we're framing up these final two episodes a little differently because we're, we're asking that question that you're kind of that to build off that analogy of being anchored. Where are we going to go from here? You know, that same right. question that Dr. King asked in 1967 in his book, where do we go from here? Chaos or community? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Those are the paths be- uh-huh. that lie before us. And I, I couldn't think of a better way to lean into this current moment than continuing to look back. Because some people might say that, hey, why, why would you talk about Writing the wrongs now, like let's just, let's talk unity. Let's let's no. That like I heard a, a congressman quote um, recently. Like there can be no unity without truth and accountability. Yeah, that's so. Right. That's how we're going to spend the rest of season two. That that's the episodes that we're making available today on MLK Day. These last two are going to continue to lean in to the injustices of the past, the way we did with Chris Everett mm-hmm. talking about 1898 that happened over 120 years ago. Because guess what? We've got to lean into that history and the truth of what has happened and how to right those wrongs if we're going to cast a vision for a future that tries to get at that beloved community that Dr. King gave us as his legacy. And so that's what our job is right now. We, we, we had an intro for, for this, this next episode. We had to scrap because we're like, guess what? It doesn't speak to the moment the way that we need to speak to this moment. And so we're doing things a little different today. We're going to drop this as a double episode to finish out season two. And I could honestly think of no better way to do it because of the duality of, yeah, we're going to lean into things like how to right the wrongs. Let, let's talk yeah. reparations and let's talk beloved community. And history. This is less theory and a lot of facts. So yeah. if I can give our listeners a little tip, let me give you a little heads up, folks. If you're driving, great. Listen while you're driving. If you're running, great. Listen while you're running. If you can, 
sitting down and listening to this and just maybe taking some notes or, or whatever you feel. What, when you hear something and you feel it, jot it down. This is about fact. And I think so much of us want to be, to use this word on purpose, armed with mm-hmm. knowledge and truth to your point, Rob. And I totally just interrupted you, but I just was feeling this moment mm-hmm. here to say what Rob is talking about is that this is, this is truth telling mm-hmm. and it's, the truth that we don't often hear, you're going to hear our guests really, really unpack for us. They're going to walk through timelines and all the things. And it's going to be really helpful. It was very helpful and enlightening for me. And I um, just sit down. You're in for a real treat, a real, real treat here. Yeah, I think that says that says it all right there. That says it all. And I think that I would encourage our listeners, I think, to have that analogy that you laid out there. Where are you anchored? And something I heard you say recently too, Jess, is that beginnings matter. Yeah, beginnings, beginnings matter. matter. And I feel like that's what this these last three episodes of season two, to me, that's one of the themes that rise to the surface is that beginnings matter. And we've got to look at the foundations of the house that we've inherited. Beautiful. And, and that's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to do now. And we'll, we're going to turn it over to two incredible guests. And we'll see you guys on the other side. Sandy, are you are you there? Are you with us? I'm definitely with you. For our listeners, you heard it. You, you should have a, a high bar of expectation for this conversation. And, uh, and Sandy uh, will not disappoint. I've, I've heard him enough times delve into these waters and do it in a way that really, no matter where you enter into this, whether you're, you're into the shallow end, you're in the, you've been waiting in the deep end for a while. If you have no knowledge, I think, you know, Sandy, you have such a gift at really meeting people where they are and being able to inform, but, but kind of being able to take them along this journey. And so I'm really looking forward to you doing that with us. Just a little bit of, of Sandy's background for those of you who really don't know the, the privilege that we have with our guest today. Sandy is the Samuel Du Bois Cook Professor of Public Policy. He is a professor of African and African American Studies and Economics and the director of the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity at our hometown here, the Duke University. Go Blue Devils. Is That might be the only time I say that on this podcast uh, as, as a Tar Heel. Um, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it today. Sandy's research has focused on a lot, of, a lot of different things for the premise of this conversation specifically. It's been extensive time delving into the waters of inequality around race, class, ethnicity, the racial achievement gap, and most recently, he has co-authored a book with A. Kristen Mullen, which is your wife, correct? You might be able to tell by the... Okay, here we go. Uh, which is really cool. From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century. So, Sandy, we're really excited to, to be here with you today. Um, obviously, you come in with such a deep wealth of knowledge on this issue. And I think before we do this, we always... We love doing this with our guests just kind of finding out a little bit more of their personal background. And so what I'd love to start out before we kind of dive into the what, I'd love to, to dive into the who, which is, which is you. And why, tell us about why this topic for you personally, why dedicate so much of your life and research to, to producing this, this book um, and, and studying this the way that you have? How did this cause become so important to you personally? Uh, well, let me say at the outset that I'm actually from a North Carolina family. Actually, uh, North Carolina families on both sides. My father was from a small town in the mountains called East Flat Rock, North Carolina. There is no West Flat Rock. So East Flat Rock was essentially the black side of Flat Rock, North Carolina. And, uh, and my mother's from uh, the tobacco town, Wilson, North Carolina. So I, I've got deep roots in North Carolina country life. And I think that to some degree that actually informs the kind of perspective and work that I've tried to do throughout the course of my life. We lived overseas for about eight years at the very beginning of of my time on earth because my father worked for the World Health Organization. But we would routinely come back to the United States and and visit my grandparents and and my, my mother's my mother's mother lived in Wilson, North Carolina, which was a town that had the classic divide between the black and white sides of town that created by the railway. So I had a very strong sense early on of the character of the Jim Crow South. Uh, it was sort of hitting me in the face, particularly every time we went home to uh, North Carolina. And so 
I'm among the generation, uh, the boomer generation, who spent most of their formative years under legal segregation in the United States. And so when people talk about, well, there's no one here living who uh, was around when slavery took place, and there's no one who was a slaveholder or no one who was enslaved, you cannot say the same thing about legal segregation in the United States. There's still a substantial number of folks who are living who were living on both sides of the of the racial divide or on each side of the racial divide. And so I think that that's something that has informed my thinking about the question of reparations. So in the work that that uh, that I've done recently with with Kirsten Mullen, we've focused on the idea that the case for reparations is not predicated exclusively on slavery. In fact, we get upset when people refer to slavery reparations. We think that the case for reparations for Black Americans who had ancestors who were enslaved in the United States is based upon slavery, but also upon nearly a century of legal segregation in the United States, coupled with waves of massacres that took place primarily in Black communities that displayed some measure of prosperity. And you mentioned that the, the previous episode was one that featured a conversation with Chris Everett, who made the film Wilmington on Fire. Wilmington is just one instance of upwards of about 100 of these massacres that took place north and south, east and west in the United States that resulted in substantial loss of Black lives, destruction of Black property, and in many cases, the actual appropriation of Black-owned property by the white terrorists. Uh, so that second phase, the period of legal segregation, is a critical component of the case for reparations. Uh, but then we also would, will argue that uh, you have to take into account the atrocities that have carried over into the post-civil rights era of the 1960s. And these include mass incarceration. They include uh, police executions of unarmed blacks sustained discrimination in employment, credit, and housing. And then most significant from the standpoint of our project and our book, the persistence of an enormous racial wealth differential. I want to emphasize it's not a difference in income that we're focused on. It's a difference in wealth, where income is primarily a product of your earnings, but wealth is the net value of your personal property. And so it includes assets like your home or, or financial assets or non-residential real estate or business ownership and the like, but it, it's a net measure, so it subtracts off your debts or your liabilities, which might include your mortgage on the home, or it might include, um, if you're a, a recent graduate of a college or a university, it might include a significant amount of student, student loan debt. So the net value of your property is what's critical from our perspective in terms of understanding economic security and economic opportunity in the United States. And so we argue in From Here to Equality that that must be the primary uh, target for a reparations project. It must be elimination of that gap. And the gap is staggering. The average black household has a net worth that is approximately $850,000 less than the average white household. And this corresponds to a circumstance where Black American descendants of U.S. slavery constitute about 13% of the nation's population, but only possess about 2.5% of the nation's wealth. And so we, we argue, because of the historical ways in which that chasm in wealth was developed through primarily American public policy, that it's vital that we apply American public policy anew to that differential, and that would require an expenditure somewhere in the vicinity of 10 to $12 trillion. Wow. The pause was intentional. I was taking notes, Sandy, and I'm also just like digesting it all. You know, we hear it when you speak. It's beautiful because I can really put this story together. Uh, so thank you for that. And, and I think our listeners are probably taking pause at what you just built for us, this case that you're building for our listeners. So we're just going to back up a tiny bit. I think there's some assumptions out there. So reparations, um, I think if I were to go on the street with a microphone and stop people on the corner and ask them what their thoughts are, what their opinions are about it, or what it is, can you define it? I think I would get 
a really mixed bag, maybe there would be a line that would run through it. But I, I don't know. I'm not sure. So just for the sake of not being sure, I'm wanting to make sure that we enter this conversation on the same page. Can you help our listeners and Rob and I level set around what do you, how do you define reparations? What is it? And what is it not? Because as we know, I've been in rooms. In fact, I was in a room just recently with some of the leads, site leads, CEOs, and executives at Research Triangle Park. And they're doing some equity work, you know, and we went through the history, right? Went through the back through the history and tried to get us all on the same page. And this term comes up. And everybody has a different response to it, mostly favorable, but, but really, I don't think there was a full understanding and we haven't gotten to the next step, right? So the next, I think we meet again in a week or whatever, but, but that's sort of the basis of this question is because I know even at, even folks who are, who have lots of lived experience and who are leading people at like large levels nationally don't fully understand what reparations are. So can you just help our listeners boil it down to the, to the basics? Well, I'll try. Uh, I'd like to start with the definition that Kirsten Mullen and I use and from here to equality, Perfect. which is to uh, characterize reparations as a program of acknowledgement, redress, and closure for a grievous injustice. And uh, by that, we mean first that acknowledgement involves the recognition on the part of the culpable party that they have done severe damage to a particular community. And simultaneously, a recognition that they or others have benefited significantly from the infliction of that damage and that they're prepared to engage in restitution. Restitution is embodied in the second component of our definition, which is redress. And I think that this is what many, many people get confused about. It's not truly reparative or reparations unless it involves an act of redress or restitution. And that usually has been monetary compensation in the context of other types of reparations projects, whether we're talking about the payments that were made by the German government to victims of the Holocaust, or we're talking about the payments that the United States government made to Japanese Americans as a consequence of their unjust incarceration during World War II. And then the third component is closure, which um, means that the culpable party and the victimized community come to an agreement that the debt has been paid or that the account is cleared. And this means that uh, the act of redress has been of sufficient magnitude and proportion to lead to uh, a settlement in some sense. And there would be no reason for the victimized community to make any further claims on the culpable party unless there was a renewal of previous atrocities or a new type of atrocity comes into play. But then and only then would there be a reason for the culpable party to be faced with a claim for an additional debt that needs to be paid. So so that's, that's the definition that we use I think it's important that the redress component means that reparations constitutes an act of compensation for the harms that have been inflicted. And this is not the same thing as merely stopping the harms. Both have to be done, but I think our preference is to say that initiatives to stop the harms fall under the rubric of racial equity initiatives in the U.S. context. But acts of reparations require substantial compensatory steps to be taken to address the effects of the harms. I think there's a terrific uh, analogy that, that can be drawn from something that Malcolm X once said, where he talked about a situation where somebody might have plunged a knife into his back. He uses his own back. And he distinguishes between the process and the act of pulling the knife out and healing the wound. Hmm. And I think that frequently people confuse the act of pulling the knife out with the act of healing the wound. The former is what we prefer to refer to as uh, racial equity actions, but the latter is what we think must be reparations, Hmm. compensation for the damages. Hmm. (sighs) Yeah, I think that really lays it out very clearly, especially around 
I just think the acknowledgement piece, it feels, I mean, that, that I'm assuming you're laying that out in, in order, right. Of what has to take place. Like you, yep. you, yep. you, ha- you move to redress and closure from a place of you, you have to start with acknowledgement. And I would, I would assume that when you, we think about as a country, kind of our, we've talked about this on previous episodes, just like this collective, the narratives that we like to believe about ourselves makes acknowledgement just really hard because we just, you know, I think just specifically for, for, for white people, there's just so much pushback that attack these narratives of around our inherent goodness or just like the individualism, exceptionalism that really make it really difficult for us to walk this path that you're laying out for us. But I think, I think that it's really clear. And I think you, you, you pull from some really powerful examples, you know, in, in other countries. And yeah, I think you, you stopped short of one that I've, I've heard you talk about before of there was recompense made uh, around slavery. It just went to, to the slave owners. Uh, or those who who owned and you know people who yeah, owned, but like, but in the U.S. context that only happened in a single location, which was the District of Columbia. Hmm. In the context of British emancipation of enslaved peoples in the West Indies, extensive payments were made to all of the slaveholders hmm. in the process of conducting emancipation, and. That, to me, is not necessarily a horrible way to bring about emancipation. In fact, I would argue it's a superior way than actually having a civil war. Hmm. But the real question then is, do you also compensate the formerly enslaved? That never has occurred. Hmm. And it hasn't occurred in the United States. It hasn't occurred in the former British West Indies. So that, that to me is the bigger issue. But had we executed compensated emancipation in the United States, we could have ended slavery without having the Civil War. And there were a number of proposals that were advanced to do exactly that. Uh, Lincoln was trying to make that happen up until the very end of the war in early 1865. But the Southern slaveholders would never agree to that. Hmm. And and when I say the Southern slaveholders, I don't want people to think that I'm talking about a tiny elite. Hmm. There is a mistaken view that there were very few slave owners in the in the American South. Uh, This is not true. Out of the 11 states that formed the Confederacy in the, the lowest share of persons living in families, white persons living in families that owned enslaved people, the lowest share in any of the states was about 25%. And if you get to get to the upper end, if you're looking at Mississippi and South Carolina, 55% of white folks lived in families that were slave owners. So the rejection of compensated emancipation was not merely an elite decision among the Southern political structure. It was a, it was a decision that was arrived at because of widely held possessiveness in the maintenance of the slave system. Hmm. And I think that's where your, your, the analogy that you, you quote from Malcolm X is incredibly helpful visual because when you talk about acknowledgement, I mean, apply to that metaphor, I think that it's a non-starter. Oftentimes this conversation is a non-starter in some spaces where if it's not even the difference between, well, how do we, are we making sure we're healing the wound? Are we just pulling it out? Are we actually doing the work and the surgery necessary to make it right? But even acknowledging that the knife is even there is a contentiously debated fact, right, in our society right now. And we're coming off of a 2020 election where we're just seeing just how deeply divided we are as a nation. And so I do think it's helpful here to distinguish when I hear this conversation, and I, I feel like I've tried to lean into to these waters whenever I can to understand, because the, you know, the premise of this podcast is we need to get proximate to our, the history of injustice and really name the wrongs of our past, um, acknowledge them, and then strive to make them right. Otherwise, we're not going to dig deep enough and get to the root. And so we're really just going to be kind of treating symptoms. Uh, and so people can have well-intentioned uh, in their community of, of trying to uh, eradicate poverty or, or you know, see the flourishing of their neighbor. But if, we're not, if we don't start with that acknowledgement, then we're not digging deep enough it doesn't position us to actually be on a path to, to true healing. And so I guess it's just helpful for our listeners to understand that typically this conversation, I've seen it kind of go in two directions of like whataboutism, where it's like you end up debating whether, why or why not, or you talk about the, the what. What I'd like to do is, you know, I think leaning in, we have not shied away from leaning into the why 
based on an assumption that we are looking to truly heal prescriptively. Paint a vision, I think in your book, you kind of, you break it down. You mentioned 10 to $12 trillion. Just help us paint a picture of what that would look like practically to execute this plan. Uh, because you, you've actually done this math and extensively, you know, for, for a listener that's unfamiliar, now that you've established the what of defining reparations, talk about the how a little bit. Before I do that, I do want to mention that I think that there are there are some manufactured reasons why people might be reluctant to take up the act of, of acknowledgement. And I think it has to do with the misperceptions that have been intentionally structured, particularly by organizations like the United Daughters of the Confederacy and the Daughters of the American Revolution, to create a false narrative about what happened under slavery, what happened during the Reconstruction era, what happened during the Civil War itself. And this false narrative is one that creates uh, a heroic story about the Confederacy rather than treating the formation of the Confederacy as an act of traitorship, which is precisely what it was. You know, these organizations intentionally and actively tried to structure what we learn in our schools, what we learn from the media, what we learn from observing films. I mean, the the two of the most influential films in the history of of American cinema were films that were themed on the Civil War and Reconstruction in such a way that they reinforced the notion that there was something romantic about the Confederate project. And one of these is Birth of a Nation, and the other is one of the two most influential films ever made in the United States on all topics, made in the same year with the other of the most influential films, uh, which is Gone with the Wind, which was made in 1939 at the same time The Wizard of Oz was made. Those, I think those are the iconic American films. So we have ways in which we've been propagandized into thinking about this historic era that leads people to obviously have uh, reservations about embracing a, a reparations project. But in terms of the details of a reparations project, I, I'd like to highlight three aspects, one of which I've talked about a bit. The first is that a well-designed reparations plan must be specific about who is eligible to receive the benefits of the plan. And we argue that there are two characteristics that an individual would have to possess to be eligible to receive reparations. The first is that they must meet a uh, a lineage standard, and the second is that they must meet an identity standard. The lineage standard has it that an individual would have to demonstrate that they have at least one ancestor who was enslaved in the United States. And then the second, the second condition is the identity standard, which means that for at least 12 years before the adoption of a reparations plan or the adoption of a study commission to uh, examine reparations, for at least 12 years before either of those events take place, an individual would have to demonstrate that they self-identified as Black, Negro, African-American, or Afro-American. So the first is the, 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 the establishment of uh, an ancestral link to uh, United States slavery. And then the second is uh, the establishment of a self-classification as a Black American at a point in which there was no obvious monetary reward from self-identifying as such. So that's the first uh, dimension. The second is establishing what the amount should be. And I've suggested that it should be at least 10 to $12 trillion since the objective must be elimination of the racial wealth gap. And then the third issue that people are frequently concerned about is how would you, how would you do it? How would you distribute the funds? We argue that the best way to distribute the funds is to make direct payments to individual eligible recipients, and those payments should be roughly of equal amounts to everyone who is eligible to receive the funds. Yep. Got it. There it is. One, two, and three. 
I'm going to get into some water here that's a little bit choppy now that you've laid out the plan, Dr. Darity. You know, um, we open up this podcast, the very beginning, the, the pre-recorded part talks about that I'm a co-founder of a nonprofit organization called Black Wall Street Homecoming. The idea of that organization, uh, we designed it so that we could help to close the funding gap for founders of color who were building early stage companies in the tech space. And then we sort of evolved that into businesses who that didn't have to be in tech, but that were founded by that had black ownership. And the key here was that we really wanted to bounce off the legacy of Black Wall Street in Durham and where cooperative economics was so strong and that the black dollar was moving around here in Durham and Haiti and that whole heritage here. So that that was our our North Star. Now, this question is choppy because, and I, and I love this question because I've heard it and people do worry about it, is if reparations, financial reparations are deployed, how and what and what's the length of that of that benefit? How's it going to last in our community? And here's why. And so um, Rob set this question up for me, which was beautiful. He gave me a, a, the quote at the end of Wilmington on Fire, and I'm going to read it. And then I want to I want to frame my question based on my experience with Black Wall Street Homecoming. So you were in Wilmington on Fire. Um, you're talking about your you know you're basically sh- sharing and and sharing this this information in that film and there's a quote at the end that says be careful about money it says be careful about money money runs out because we don't have a self-sustaining economic community if there were to give we were to give black descendants a financial payout white people know through economic science that the 1 trillion dollars will be back in their hands in 25 years why because you have no business of your own in which to spend it. We have to be strategic because if we're not careful, white people will give you the money in one hand and take it back with the next because we don't have independent institutions in which to sustain yourself. So I'm curious how you feel about that, that quote, whether you feel like your one, two, three, your steps one through three account for that and what like wraparound work needs to take place in order to withhold those rep, the the deployment of the of funding so that to your point the wealth gap can be sufficiently closed and we don't have to we can move forward so the argument we're making is you close the wealth gap directly by providing the black community collectively with the resources that would be consistent with uh, erasure of that differential in wealth. Now, you're, you're really raising a question that, that I've referred to in a couple of my papers as the Chappelle effect, because there's this, this notorious skit that Dave Chappelle did where black people receive reparations and then they turn around and they spend everything immediately, but they have to spend everything on products that are generated by white-owned corporations because there's not an adequate black business infrastructure. Okay. Yeah, you said that much better than I did. That's, that's exactly <laughs> my point. The Chappelle effect. I should have just said that. Fantastic. Yeah. And, okay. and I, I think this the skit is hilarious, uh, <laughs> but it's it's also raising a serious point, and it's the point that you're 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 inquiring about is whether or not you have to build an institutional structure of black businesses before you give black people additional resources. And I think it's a question that's also associated with uh, an assumption about a, a particular way in which cause and effect is operating. So I think frequently people are thinking that business development is the source of wealth, whereas in the analysis that we're pursuing, we think that having wealth as a foundation is a basis for business development. Mm-hmm. And so in our way of thinking, If there are individual Black Americans who want to set up their own businesses or they want to invest in existing businesses, then they can do so. They can choose to do so after they receive their reparations payments. Uh, In a sense, you could argue that closing a gap of approximately $850,000, which would mean a payout of of about $250,000 or more, 
to each individual eligible recipient, that's a game changer in terms of options and opportunities. And if there are folks who wanted to come together and pool their resources to build black businesses further, then that's fine. But I think it should be a matter of individual discretion. I, I think there are ways in which people will build assets that might involve having funds go to whites. I mean, if you purchase a new home and the previous owner was a white owner, then the funds for that purchase will go to them. But you will also have acquired an asset that hopefully could be an appreciating asset, depending on which neighborhood you're now able to buy in. If you purchase land and the original owner is somebody white, then they are going to get the funds from that purchase. But again, hopefully you would have an appreciating asset. And if you're talking about financial markets, well, there's some degree of anonymity about who the owners are uh, when you're talking about stocks and bonds and the like. But, But again, the expenditure leads you to have further development in your own asset position. And that means that you can also make transfers across generations that would enhance the prospects for your children and grandchildren to have a wider range of opportunities in the future moment. There's also this puzzling claim that people make about the circulating dollar. There's absolutely no study that I'm aware of anywhere that talks about how frequently a dollar changes hands within the black community. This is something that people have really fabricated. Oh my gosh, I just heard it again last week. It's everywhere. It's, it's yeah, a- it's everywhere. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. Um, some of these things we take to heart, but there really is actually no foundation for them in, in evidence or data. So it's not clear that your dollar has to stay within your community to produce additional wealth in your community. Because it depends on what you're using the dollar for, what you're purchasing. Yep. And to the extent that you can purchase additional assets, then you're actually improving the wealth position of your community, even if the money is going initially into somebody else's hands. I'm over here snapping. Yeah, that's so good. That makes sense. I mean, that's so, that's very clear to me. Um, you know, closing the gap. Well, let me have one other thing. Yeah. Um, you know, there is, there is this whole issue of acquisition of businesses. And because of the differential in wealth position between blacks and whites, there are far greater odds for a white business owner to start the process of being a business owner, either by receiving the business as a gift or by having the capacity to purchase the business outright at the beginning of the process. Almost all black owned businesses are startups. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. then, the, then the first thing out of, I mean, the first thing that, that we do is, or the, the phrase that it just resounds and bounces off every wall every time you're trying to start a business is access to capital. Everybody That's says right. it. We're all yeah. trying to find it. We're all searching. I have a good friend who spent two years trying to find capital in this city of Durham that probably would have taken her white counterpart no time if at all, frankly. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm making, I'm guessing here, but this wasn't a, a big hill she was trying to climb. She was just trying to grab about $150,000 to be oh, able to lift right. her business, right? And it took her two years to find partners and investors, black partners and investors who cobbled together that money to help lift her business. And we, we just know that that's, that was, a, that was two years. That was two solid years just to open doors um, where oftentimes yeah. it's just not the case. I I would assume that in the aftermath of uh, receipt of reparations, it would not take two years for that type of capital to be assembled. That's right. That's an excellent, that's an excellent example. Thank you for that, Dr. Darren. Yeah, I I think that makes a ton of sense when the way you talk about the relationship between cause and effect. And and I think we, we use language on this podcast a lot around this idea of of kind of the both and versus the either or. And I think that it's a, you have to be careful with that question because the, those two things can almost be put against each other to be like, well, which one should we do? Should we, you know, develop uh, the institutions and the ecosystems, you know, for wealth generation or should we do financial power? Well, well, there's no premise that says you have to choose one or the other. And I think that especially considering the, your answer before, when you talk about if you're coming into this, a lot of it is the posture, I believe is so important. If you're coming into this with the posture and the conviction that we need to do a fully acknowledge the wrong in order to fully heal 
and be and make it right, then I think we're gonna you would then leverage your collective imagination, which I think as a nation in 2020, we showed what we could do to rally around. I know they're not the same things, but it's 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 in the same category, right? Around stimulus checks for COVID, right? Like we can really tap into innovation uh, in ways to make this right. But I, I think that it's a really sobering reality, kind of this level set as a nation historically. You know, it, is it HB forty? Is that the uh, that's the name of the uh, of the the bill that HR forty House Resolution forty House Resolution HR forty that has literally the bill isn't to do reparations; it's just to study it and. It has gone and has never even made it. Well, well, it's 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 to do a little more than study it. It's to bring proposals, legislative proposals, to Congress for reparations. So it it is not a reparations plan in and of itself, right. but it is a commission that's supposed to generate a reparations plan. This is parallel with what was done as a prelude to the Japanese-American reparations, where they formed a commission that was called the Commission on Wartime Relocation and Internment of Civilians. And that commission generated a report in 1982 that was called Personal Justice Denied that included an attempt to set the record straight about what had occurred during World War II. It demonstrated unequivocally that U.S. officials knew that Japanese Americans were not a national security threat, but still proceeded to uh, put them in camps all across the country in isolated places in addition. But it also provided a plan for restitution that Congress could consider adopting. And so I think something similar is what should be the uh, the task of of a commission to study reparations and to study proposals for reparations. Hmm. I have some very strong reservations about the way in which the legislation is currently written, but the principle of having a commission as a prelude to actual legislative action is something that makes tremendous sense to me. I think that's a helpful clarification. I think the overall point that was trying to make there was that there seems to be a real resistance to starting this process in a way that would lead to the end result that you have laid out in, in your book. And I think that well, as we land the plane here, Sandy, what I'd like to ask you is, you know, what what do you think prevents us from leveraging the full weight of our collective imagination around righting these wrongs of racial injustice in our country. What's the biggest obstacle that you see standing in the way of us executing this, this vision that you've laid out in your book? I think that the misperceptions that I talked about that have altered or have moved us away from an accurate understanding of the nation's history is an important consideration. But the other one is I think misperceptions that are associated with how people think about the sources of existing racial economic inequality. You know, I think far too often the narrative that dominates is one that suggests that black people have less because of black people's own bad behavior, certain kinds of dysfunctional behaviors that we engage in. Uh, you know, sadly, I think to a large degree, this kind of perception was actually reinforced by President Obama in many in many of the statements that he made over the course of his presidency. And also, you know, starting with his 2004 address to the Democratic Convention, where he talked about he invoked the, the atrocious acting white hypothesis. OK, so. So, so one of the things that we attempt to do in, in uh, From Here to Equality is actually to provide evidence that runs counter to people's conventional beliefs about why there is racial economic inequality in the first place. And we try to demonstrate quite systematically the reason why we have the racial wealth gap, for example, is very much a consequence of American public policy. It's not a consequence of misbehavior on the part of Black Americans. Yeah, good. Thank you for for laying that out. Um, I want to, like Rob said, we're landing the plane here. And it's, first of all, I don't want to give away the lead here, but we do this thing called the show up moment. And in my show up moment for our listeners is they need to read this book, From Here to Equality, co-authored by 
yourself and a is it Kirsten or Kirsten? Kirsten. Kirsten. I want to get it right. We got to get it right. A Kirsten Mullen. So we need to read that book. That would be the first thing. So I'm going to provide that as the show up moment on behalf of of you and and Rob and and those who are listening. That's the first thing that we need to do from here to equality reparations for Black Americans in the 21st century. Is there anything else that you would like to offer our listeners as a way in which that they can enter this conversation, this work from where they sit after this podcast is over? How How would you like them to engage? I think the last thing I'd like to share is is an important historical detail that I think is is critical to the case that we make, which is that uh, in the aftermath of the Civil War, the four million individuals who had been enslaved were promised 40-acre land grants as restitution for their years of bondage, and those 40-acre land grants were not delivered. At the same time, the federal government was in the process of providing upwards of one and a half million white families with 160-acre land grants in the western part of the United States as a means of consolidating the nation's colonial settler project on Indian territory. And those 160-acre land grants were the foundation for a significant number of white American families' current levels of economic security and well-being. In fact, I think that the researcher Trina Shanks-Williams has estimated that upwards of 45 million living white Americans are beneficiaries of the Homestead Act land grants that took place starting in 1862. And so at the very end of the Civil War, the formerly enslaved received nothing. Many white Americans received substantial tracts of land in the western part of the United States. And I think that's the foundation for the immense racial wealth gap that we observe today. And so I I think we really do have to reconsider America's history with respect to racial divide, a racial divide in wealth accumulation mechanisms that has its effects to the present moment. And those effects are manifest in this uh, $850,000 average differential in net worth between black and white households. I got a lot to learn. I just want to say that it's a lot. It's like drinking out of a fire hose with this podcast, frankly. And it's just trying to keep up with revisionist history and Mm. level setting with accurate information. I mean, even down to that black dollar circulating. Now I got to go and Mm. look that up and correct the conversations that I'm having. I'm not kidding. It it feels sometimes overwhelming, the gaps, the missing information Mm. that we have. And, And I just want to thank you, Dr. Darity, for your investment in this work. And because I benefit from it, Rob's benefiting, our listeners are benefiting from that today. And you've put the time in and you've done the work. And so thank you for that. And now it's our turn to go equally if we're led. And I'm hopeful that we will, right? We can only control ourselves, Hmm. but um, to go and get fill ourselves with with information truly and, and make sure that it's accurate. So I just want to thank you for that. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Derry. This is I appreciate your your the commitment that you have made to leaning in to such a such a messy history that is our shared story, right? I mean, this is a this is but the mess has not deterred you. And I think oftentimes that's I think that that motivates me to this is a complex problem um and it's going to have a need require a complex solution uh, and just because the solution is complex doesn't mean we shouldn't really leverage our, our imagination, the way that you're doing to try to get to the root so that we can truly heal. Um, and that wound you talk about can, can really can go away. Otherwise, we're, we're, if we continue to sweep it under the rug and don't dig, dig deep enough, we're going to be on this hamster wheel and it's just going to be a repeating cycle. And, and I, I think um, for those of the people on this listening to this podcast, I think are inspired because they, they want to do the work. And I think you give them some pieces to this puzzle that can help start to fill in some gaps as the way you have for Jess and I. So I just I'm really grateful, grateful for you. And uh, yeah, we'll echo that. I think encourage all, all of our listeners to pick up your book, give it a read and, and begin deconstructing kind of some of these false narratives that exist and, and really educating themselves on how to be a part of, of the solution in ways that are meaningful. So thank you for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Okay. Well, you know, we are never disappointed. I feel like... It's these are these times are such gifts to be able to sit with 
people mm. of that caliber. Mm. Dr. Darity is like, I told him before we went on live, he's like a myth and a legend, like mm. just so esteemed and so highly regarded. Um, and so sought after really, because yeah. he is so researched and thoughtful and considerate about his opinions. And so I feel like that all came through in the, in our interview with him. And I'm just so grateful that he took the time, but you know, this is our time to process. So I'm, I'm really curious, Rob, to hear where you are and, and yeah. what your initial thoughts are. Well, yeah, I've got, I think that there's several thoughts I have. The, the one, if people can hear me sighing, <laughs> it's, it's real. That's not, that's not fabricated. I'm like trying to, like that, that's just the sound that my brain is making right now. And I think there's, if I could articulate into words what that sigh means, Jess, it, it's like, um, it's this desire, like deep inside me, this desire for this to be cleaner. Right. Like in my, I, I desperately, desperately want to get to the root of, of injustice in our communities. But if I'm being honest, I, just, I want it to be easier than this. Yeah. I do. If, if I, that's a brutal, that's a brutal, honest answer for me that it's like, oh, this is overwhelming. It makes my, it, it's hard, it's messy. And I think that I'm also channeling a lot of the conversations I'm in, in like predominantly white spaces where it's, it's a little, it's just, I just know that we have gotten here as a nation without doing this so long, because I just think we, there is so much resistance to the acknowledging portion and mm -hmm. to just how messy this would be. And I think that it's like, I, I feel that, I guess I just want to say, if you're white and you're listening to this, like I'm not talking down to you. I am you in a way that like, I just, it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. But I think also there's this other side of my brain that's telling me just because something is messy, that's not a reason not to do it. That's right. And if we don't deal. So let me say this another way. There isn't a clean option here. Because guess what? We're, we're dealing with the mess of not dealing with this. Right. And we'll continue to deal with that mess until we deal with it. Mm -hmm. And so it's either you deal with the mess of not dealing with it, or you wait into the mess of the solution. But if you're waiting for a clean answer, that, that it's not coming. And I, I think that the reason this conversation is so important, I think, is because it's one of the most challenging ones. It's one of the ones that is the most nuanced for our listeners uh, maybe of all time. I mean, <laughs> I don't even know what episode count we're at yet, but we're pretty far into some pretty deep waters. I and mean, we started mm -hmm. out introducing and defining what justice was in episode one of season one. Now we're defining what reparations are. I mean, we're, we're moving into deeper waters. Yeah. And I think for our listeners, I know that our listeners are coming at these episodes with a conviction of wanting to do what's right and I think that it's almost like a, an accounting, a self-accounting of how far are we willing to go? And are we willing to wade through messiness in order to get to that? Because it's easy to say things like, I want to pursue things that lead to the flourishing of my community. That's, that's a cheap sentence. Mm -hmm. like that, that cost me nothing to say that just now. That's right. Yeah. Which is why it's just like, it just drip, drips off the tongue. And if we're not careful, we can pat ourselves on the back just for saying cheap sentences. Mm -hmm. This is not a cheap solution, literally and figuratively, right? Like there's an emotional cost. There's a, it, it makes you think in ways that your brain is going to hurt. And I just think that we, I know for me as a white guy, I just, I'm not used to working those muscles. Yeah. I'm not we're used to developing those muscles. And so it makes me want to pull the, the, the cord of the, of the parachute and be like, yeah, I just, I just need to, but I need to press against that. And I need to. I guess I'm just saying in a different way, like just because it's messy doesn't mean that it is something we just need to be like, yeah, okay. Just don't want to, just want to yeah. tune that out. It doesn't it's, matter. It's not going it to go away. Mess, it's messy. It doesn't mean it doesn't matter. It, matters. it doesn't matter. And it doesn't mean it's going to fix itself on its own. Right. That's we right. have to push, we have to push and get over that initial hesitation in our, in our hearts and in our posture in this conversation. So I mean, the other things that stood out to me is this power of narrative and Brian Stevenson talk about it all the time, you know, the, the, the misperceptions, you know, he didn't say this quote directly, but I, I've heard it said, I think this was attributed to Brian Stevenson that, you know, the North won the, the, the actual civil war, but the South won the narrative war. 
mm-hmm. and you know, who we are recording this podcast, you know, deep in, you know, we're, we're here in Durham, North Carolina, right? And I'm from New Bern, North Carolina. So th- this hits home to me because that whole idea is personal to my story. I mean, I grew up in a town of New Bern, North Carolina that, you know, you're not really fully taught the history. And when you, when you have, when you have gaps in your education, you make faulty assumptions. He talked about the 40 acres land grants that were promised that and what would never fully fulfilled. Well, you know, there's a small community right over across the river in Newburn called James city and in James city, that's an actual example of this happening. And it's a, it's a history I was never taught of a black community of former, formerly enslaved people who were given land and began to flourish because that land was given to them. And then during reconstruction, that land was taken back. Mm-hmm. And to this day, I grew up in the New Bern, you know, over a hundred years later, where the people, predominantly African-American that lived in James City, were living in poverty for the most part. And if you don't tell the story of wh- how that flourishing was stripped from them, then I'm left as a teenager in history class making assumptions that are false about wealth. Yeah, I can get I can get there of well, if I look around and I see the black community not doing well and I'm not taught how the circumstances, then what are we supposed to do with that? Right. I, that's how that's how the misperceptions continue to grow. And it's only through the education that I now look back on that with a fresh set of eyes. And I think a, a clear lens. Yeah, I, I love that perspective. I love the, the our check-in at the end because of our perce- the perspective, the lens that we see the interview through. So this is so good. I love to hear, you know, you're saying, so when you say messy, I also, I concur. I concur. But I'm also saying to self, as a Black woman or just as a Black American, I'm just sort of like, it's messy. Well, yo, he gave us two examples of when it's happened in the past. And he gave us three steps to how to fix it, right? So yes, it is messy, but gosh, it's frustrating to have to say, why can't we get this? The case has been built. What, what What's the problem? And the mm. problem is propagandizing you know, our history or the revisionist history to which we have all come to adopt and is in our DNA and that we're trying to like extract and it's so hard. It's the misrepresentations and misperceptions as you laid out just, and it's just a lack of willingness. Yeah. The conviction we talked about, right? It's, it's What's that and, and narrative, these false narratives really can make this a non-starter yeah. and but I and, think and that it's power because we, I'm sorry yeah. to interrupt, but it's also yeah. still the power structure is still in play right. for it to fall on deaf ears. Right. You know, I mean, that's the other thing. It might make sense and the case is built, but if you have a white supremacist structure of government and policy, you know, what's the motivation? What's the drive? What's the, what's the why there? I mean, besides just simply having a willingness to right a wrong and to move us into an equitable space. And I mean, that's, that's where we are, folks. That's That's the bottom line of this. And so I, for me, and that is why as a black American, it's frustrating because it feels hard, but it, and messy to your point, but Dr. Darity and others who are doing this work to continue to lay out the argument it's just it's the it's the big it's the beginning of a drumbeat that's faint right that has been over the last couple of years i mean i i understand reparations for decades have been on on the table here we've been talking about it but for me as a professional woman just last you know i don't know 5 7 years of making this up but this like sort of like very faint drumbeat trying to understand it what would that actually look like what does it mean and i feel that beat is getting a little bit louder now but again it will all it'll all end with willingness hmm. because the case is there I, i'm telling you like he gave us actually three examples of where that has happened in the past for other people groups if you see me i'm doing air quotes hmm. and three steps in how to get it done and I think you're exactly right, Jess. And I think we have to name the fact that where there's been a lack of willingness has been the people who are in you know, in power and benefiting from it, who designed all this in the first place, right? And it's done what it was designed to do. And I think that we have to hone in there and name the fact that like, if white if white people built this, then white people got to be a part of 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 making it right. It they have to, have to, yeah. have to be a part of it. And it, it uh, clearly like that's, we cannot, this isn't just going to fix itself if we just 
use terminology terminology that just rolls off the tongue but doesn't really do the the, the root work. And I think that the power of a narrative. And I think the last thing I'll mention is that for me, I, I think we just want to be careful in not falling in the trap of pitting things in an either or mentality, right? Against each other. I guess I feel, I feel the weight of like the conversations out. You've been in these rooms, right? Where like, it just feels like, okay, well, what is it? Is it systemic injustice or is it individual responsibility? And people are, end up fighting tooth and nail where it's either all one or all the other. And it feels like that very much is indicative of so many justice conversations. And that's where I choose to lean into like, wh- why is that an either or? Why is that being presented to us on a premise that you have to choose one or the other versus why can't we look at this as, yeah, brokenness is everywhere. It's in people, it's in systems. Let's, why, is, why are we pitting institutional ecosystems against financial payouts? Like we need to be looking at this more with like a both and and where, where is there merit on the other side of the argument that we can lean into? Because if we, if we don't look at this through that both end lens, I just don't think you're ever going to see two sides coming together, you know, and actually finding the coalitions needed to make a move forward toward healing. Mm-hmm. That's where we have to stay hopeful. I'm yeah. serious because yeah. it can it can feel like at the end of these ish episodes, like, well, well, that'll never happen, right? Yes, but, yeah. But, but, <laughs> yeah. No, that is not the goal of these episodes. It's no. not to leave you feeling like, well, that'll never happen, but it is to provide the case. Here's the case. And we have seen over time that, you know, history does change and evolve. We, we have seen our country move and shape like an amoeba based on culture eating strategy for lunch. Isn't mm. it? Did we talk about this, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Culture can shape and change our history for our families and for generations to come. And we are in a cultural shift right now. Mm. And the collective will is what's going to carve that stone a little bit deeper. A little That's bit right. Deeper. And that, I, that is the way to land the plane on hope of like, while I push back on this idea, we've talked about this in, in the previous episodes of like of our inherent goodness as a country, I will also say we as a nation have a high ceiling on what we can accomplish when we put our imagination to it. Now, oftentimes that has been negative, mm-hmm. but that shows that we could do it. That shows that we are capable of solving yeah. hard problems. If we, we have been capable of doing, being on the wrong side of, of really perpetuating injustice, but it also means we have it within us to make it right. That's right. That's a great place to end. Yeah. I can't well, wait for next week. The third there it is. Part. Yeah, we're stay with us. Stay with us, guys. If you are, yeah, you, you've been on this journey. We're gonna be, you know, I think we're gonna land in a place of hope. I, I think this conversation, we're fighting for hope and clinging to it here even now. But I, I do believe that we're gonna wade into those waters of how do we stay hopeful in this conversation because we've got to. We've got to continue to stay hopeful if we're gonna keep showing up in the ways our communities need us, if we're gonna do that digging, because the digging is tiring, right? To dig that deep, it takes effort and energy, which means that the hope is gonna be what sustains us. So stay tuned, we're gonna land this plane in a really strong way as we wrap up season two. So uh, we look forward to to doing that um, on the flip side. All right, see you then. See you then, friend. Thanks so much for listening to Just. In the spirit of sharing, if you like what you've heard, tell a friend about the show and give us a five-star rating and review. Many thanks to DJ P-Dog and producer Low Key for producing the music for our show. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's that pain and tragedy that causes you to be able to have respect. And that's very contrary to the narrative of America because America doesn't want to deal with its pain and its tragedy. The key to moving forward is embracing and dealing with your pain.